There are a couple of things that you will notice, one on the stage, one in your bulletin, that are different than normal. Um, I don't think anyone's ever seen a giant pea made out of tin on stage before. There's a reason for that. And the reason for that really is going to encompass our entire summer. So we have finished Ephesians, and we are moving into what we have called the Summer of Psalms. There's a reason for that imagery, and that imagery is intended to make it so that when we walk in this room, everything we see, or part of everything we see, part of everything we hear, continues to drive us toward the same theme that both this sermon and our whole series is going to be on. So we'll explain that in a moment. I just didn't want to ignore the elephant in the room, and by elephant, I mean giant tin P in parentheses. You'll also notice in your bulletin, we mentioned this last week, in the sermon notes page, a QR code. That QR code will take you to Uversion Bible app, and that Uversion Bible app page will have in listed order all of the passages that we have to work on this morning. So that will be different a little bit than the ones you see listed above it. The ones above it were the initial list that I gave to Julie, Holly, and Abby, and the ones that you see on the Uversion app are the ones that, as I finalized things this morning, those are the ones that were in the final version of, of the sermon. So, the last thing you'll see is there's a note about decals, stickers, whatever you want to call them. They're in the back by the, the Connect Center. This is our same type of image that we have over here. And it is our, our logo, if you will, for this series. And take one if you'd like one. Um, there's, only, there's a limited number, but there's plenty to go around. So if you'd like one, get one. We can always get more if we need to. And I say that, but Julie was in charge of it, so I have no idea if we can actually get more. But we're going to pretend like we can. So it is just a way to remind you, wherever you want to put it, what we're talking about. Now, back to this. It's the summer of Psalms. And if you think about the book of Psalms or, or the, the name Psalms, there's a little bit, well, two things. One, totally irrelevant. When we're referring to the book of Psalms, it has an S at the end. When referring to the individual Psalm, it only has a S at the beginning, not at the end. That's just a point of knowledge for you to hold. Now, in Psalms, we have this book. If I were to call it the Psalms, what would you think of me? Nothing good, I imagine. I have been through enough Bible training that if I refer to this as the Psalms, you can either think that I'm silly or you can think that I'm ignorant. I'm not. I am maybe silly, but not ignorant. Uh, the P at the beginning of Psalms is silent, right? We know this. It's a silent letter. It makes no sound as we say Psalms. In the book of Psalms, interestingly, you will find more often than not and almost exclusively that God is a silent character. He speaks in moments. He has talked about a lot. But if you were to read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all the way through Job, God is an active character in almost every one of those books. Then we come to the Psalms, and he is a silent character. He's a character who's actually not out doing a whole lot, other than that he is the sovereign God in control, making things happen. 
but he is not an active character in the Psalms themselves. As we talk about the Psalms this summer, that's going to be a key part of what we look at. God, when he is a silent character, when he's not the one out doing everything, but working through us and engaging the world through us. We look at the world, we see it crumbling, and we say, where is God? We look at the culture, or we look at our particular communities, and we say, why are things not going right? We look at our own personal lives, and we say, why are they not working out the way we want? We want God to act, but sometimes he holds himself back in a silent character mode. So what do we do in those moments? What do we do when it seems like God just isn't engaging the way we would if we were God? Which in and of itself puts us in an awkward circumstance because we're not God. We don't know as much as God and we should be very careful about questioning him. However, that doesn't change the fact that it may feel that way at times. So what do we do? Today, we're gonna look at this, the first step in that process. The first step in that process begins in Psalm 119. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to read this. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to be together, to engage with your word, to engage with you. We pray, Father, that you would be honored and glorified in our hearts and in our lives. We pray that you would be the center of our thoughts, that you would be, that you would take away the distractions of the world around us so that we could focus on you in this moment. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for giving us your son. We pray that you would use this time to your glory, to your honor. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Psalm 119, 105. Now, interestingly, if you, what you, I don't know what you know about Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is like a bunch of different psalms all compiled into one psalm, and they each have a weird word at the beginning of them. Psalm 119, 105, if you look just above it, says noon. Why? Because that's a Hebrew letter. And so he started this psalm with that Hebrew letter. He goes through all the different Hebrew letters, writing psalms that begin with that Hebrew letter, which means very little to us because none of us know what a noon is. But it says this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. As we talk about this silent he, this silent God, uh, who's not really silent, but it seems that way, that is where we need to start. That God's word, the scriptures themselves, Christ, when he was here in human form, they were God's word to us, and they are a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. What exactly does that mean? What does it mean that God is a lamp or his word is a lamp, that his word is a light? The Christian culture has made a grave error in acting like God's word tells us what to do in every circumstance. It doesn't. I have read lots of the Bible. 
Okay, I've actually read all of the Bible many times. Never have I seen them talk about how often I should play golf. I can't find a verse on it. So when I try to decide, should I play golf or should I not, does the Bible tell me? Not particularly. But the principles that we learn about how to be from the scripture inform how we would do that. So when we talk about how the Bible is a lamp to our feet or a light to our path, it's that it reveals something to us and that is the character of God. And as we then emulate, copy the character of God, we make choices in our lives on how to act. But if we think that the Bible is just going to be our guidebook to tell us what steps to take in life at a certain time, we'll find ourselves very disappointed. His word is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path to let us see where we are going, what steps to take as we copy the character of Christ. Which scriptures do we use for that? It almost seems silly that, that this has to be an addressed topic because for the almost duration of American Christianity and Christianity as it precedes America in general, the idea has been that the Bible is God's inspired word. But there are many, some particularly well-known pastors in America who have stated that we should divorce ourselves from the Old Testament, get rid of everything that comes before Matthew and ignore it. What do we read in the scripture about that? The book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3. 2 Timothy is a New Testament book written by Paul to his protege, Timothy, who's out leading a group of churches. He writes a letter to him explaining things, actually a couple of different letters. And 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What scripture is he referring to? When Paul wrote this sometime in the late 50s, early 60s, they didn't have 66 books put together in a bound form to be a Bible. So particularly the scriptures that he would be pointing to would be the Old Testament. So when we, at least as a first step, it goes beyond this, but as at least a first step, all scripture includes the Old Testament. But then what do we do with the New Testament? There's very little argument or debate on whether the Gospels uh, are, would be considered part of the New Testament or part of Scripture. At least in general, there's very little because these are the stories about Jesus and what he said. But what about the stuff that comes after that? How do we know, this is not a time to get into how do we verify or validate the books of the Bible, but how do we know what the Bible even says about it? How do we know what the Bible anticipates about itself. If we were going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'd look at verses 15 and 16. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16 says something very interesting. It says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, 
So now that's who we're speaking of, Paul the Apostle, who wrote the letters that we've, many of us have read many times. Just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some difficult things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and under, unstable twist to their own destruction as they do what? Other scriptures. So Peter here equates Paul's writings that he sent out to churches all over the world. He equates them to scriptures because he says they twist Paul's writings as they do other scriptures. If he wasn't including them with the scriptures, he would just have said as they do scriptures. But he doesn't. He says other scriptures as though other ones of the same kind. So, so what we have is Paul's writings at least validated by Scripture, our Scripture. The Old Testament is what is referred to in 2 Timothy as Scripture. What do we do with it? If we're going to use it as a lamp to our feet and as a light to our path, what do we do with it? Do we take it and set it on our counter to be picked up next Sunday when we go to church? Do we ignore it as we go through our day? Do we make our own decisions? Because by golly, we're smart people. What do we do? Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. If you remember, this is right after Moses has died. And Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Much of that is the story of the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt, ushering them to the gates of the promised land, but not going in. So they're at one side of a river and they need to get to the other side of a river in order to make it to the promised land. And Moses has just died. That wasn't an accident. It was because he chose to intentionally violate what God had called him to do. And so his consequence was he wasn't going to make it into the promised land, but Joshua does. Moses's follower, protege, he makes it and he's ready to go in. And so God speaks to him. And he says this, Joshua chapter one, verse eight. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Not meaning that you won't say the words of it, meaning that it won't leave you. Will not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate, it, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way, he will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Now, this is particularly a message to Joshua, right? It's applicable to all of us, but the, but the idea is that Joshua was to meditate on it day and night so that he didn't deviate from it. If you either don't know it or don't think about it, you run the risk, hmm, you're almost guaranteed to deviate from it. It's not just that we run the risk that maybe that's a possibility left to our own devices, myself included. I will quickly walk away from God because I am a broken person. Psalm chapter one, verse two. If you want a list of the Psalms that we're going to be looking at, 
I would be happy to give those to you. Not next week, but the week after. That would be June 11th. We will be in Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1 is an incredible psalm and in what it teaches us about life and how to follow the Lord. But a quick snippet of it, chapter or Psalm 1 verse 2 says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, this, this person that, that is blessed in following God. And on his law, on God's law, he meditates day and night. So now we don't just have a command to Joshua, but this is a writing in the Psalms, about God's people in general, saying that the one who follows the Lord rightly meditates on his law or his scriptures day and night. Do we do that? Because if we are going to elevate in ultimately scripture above our experiences, because our experiences are going to be what tells us that maybe God isn't there in a moment, Maybe God's not looking after us. Maybe God's letting things fail accidentally. Our experience could put us there. But if we know his law and we're going to elevate scripture above experience, then we need to know what's there and meditate on it. Do we do that? I can't answer that. I can give you theoretical answers. I can tell you ideal circumstances. But only you can say whether you actually read and actually think about consistently the scriptures. And if you don't, and if we don't, then we run the risk of shipwrecking ourselves. How do I know? How do I know that God's word should supersede my experience? How do I know that God's word should supersede your experience? Some of you may have had incredible experiences. Some of you may have had things happen in your life that are mind-blowing, so how can I stand here and say that the scripture should supersede your experience? It's actually really easy. Second, second Peter chapter one, our second main text for the day. Second Peter chapter one, verses 16 to 21 says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the Father in his majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God when they were carried along as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay. What does that prove? If, 
If we're going to say that that's the proof that the scripture supersedes our experience, how did that do that? That's a legitimate question. He talks about something that went on in the first half of this passage. He says, we didn't follow cleverly designed myths. Paul goes so far as to say, I didn't follow flowery words. I just made Christ known to you. I chose to know nothing other than Christ. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Only Jesus all the time. But what about here? What experience did Peter have that he's equating the scriptures to? The transfiguration. He was with Jesus on that holy mountain, that place where something happened. And if we go back to Matthew chapter 17, we get this story. Let's just read it for a moment. Listen to this story and just imagine that you got to experience this. I cannot imagine anybody has an experience that beats this one. And in fact, Peter decided that this was his most incredible experience. That's why he used it as an example. Matthew chapter 17, verses one to eight. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was, Jesus was transfigured before them. If you don't know what transfigured means, trans means changed, figure means in his figure. So his person, his body was changed. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Just imagine you're looking at Jesus. You're climbing up the mountain. All of a sudden, he turns into a supernova, a star, a sun. You can't even look at him. That in and of itself would be a pretty incredible experience. And behold, there appeared to them to the apostles who were there, Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Okay, these guys are like 1,500 years dead. Okay, Moses is. Elijah's like 700 years dead. They're not around. And all of a sudden, Jesus starts to shine like the sun and two guys who are long, long, long dead, who are considered the pillars of Judaism, are standing there with him just having a conversation. Jesus isn't even surprised. Jesus isn't taken aback. Jesus doesn't go, oh, you guys are so cool. They're looking at Jesus saying, oh, you're so cool. So here are these two guys talking with Jesus. And Peter Got to love Peter. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. This is neat. That's paraphrased. It is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then God interrupts him. I love that part. Honestly, while he was still speaking, words were still coming out of his mouth. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
So Peter is in the midst of this incredible experience. Jesus is shining like a light. Moses and Elijah are there. And he says, maybe I can make tents for you guys and you can. And God starts to speak over top of him. He says, Peter, again, paraphrased, but just imagine the experience. Peter, this is my son. This isn't a neat experience. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. To which the only response that they have is what? When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. It's the only response they have. God himself showed up in that voice, not hiding his majesty, because even Jesus in this moment is shielding his majesty from them. As great as the experience is, and then God speaks from heaven and they're terrified. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified, but Jesus came, touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. I don't know how long this went on, but that's an experience. And it's better than yours. It's better than mine. Whatever experience we had, this beats that experience. Back to 2 Peter. What does Peter say about that experience? We ourselves heard the voice born from heaven, and for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word, that is the scriptures, more certain. The Bible, he is saying, is more certain than the experience he had of watching Jesus turn into a son and hear God's voice speak to Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And this is more certain than that. Why? Because scripture trumps experience. And it doesn't matter what experience you have from that euphoric high to the most depressing low. A lot of what we're going to see in the Psalms is cycles of devastation, not necessarily cycles of euphoria. Specifically next week, it's Psalm 22. Read Psalm 22. Know that it comes in three cycles of David wrestling with how much he hates his life in that moment. And when we're in those moments, we need to remember that we have the scripture more sure than whatever experience we're facing. When God seems silent, he's not. He's just working in a way that you can't tell. That's what the Psalms all tell us. And we can look at his working and we don't see it. We can try to sense his working. We don't sense it but we can read about who he is and what he's done and it can be certain and clear to us. For we have the prophetic word, the scripture of God, more sure than any experience we can come up with. 
even in this passage, we see the scripture referred to as a light. Why does the scripture keep getting referred to as a light? Because it does two things, maybe more. It does at least two things. It shines so people can see it. Luke chapter 8, verse 16. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under their bed. But they put it on a stand so that those who enter might see. You ever had to wake up early in the morning? Not in the summer because you almost can't wake up early enough at this point in the year to actually need to have an external light. Well, an artificial external light. This is my make it through my room without stepping on a child on the floor that I don't know is there tool. It is. In fact, I woke up a child this morning because I was looking for my shoes under the bed. All of a sudden, I see eyes open and look at me. Like, oh, that's odd. <laughs> Not really what I was expecting. But that is the tool that I use for that. How well would it work? I could even turn the flashlight on. How well would it work if I stuck it in my pocket with the flashlight on? How much light am I going to get to see by? That's what this passage is saying. When you light a light, you don't stick it underneath something because putting it underneath something hides that light. We are to take the light of Scripture, the lamp that Peter talks about, the lamp and the light that the psalmist talks about, and we're to set it on a stand so that people could see. But not only so that people can see, but so that people can see what's true. How good does it, do, or what good does it do us if what we see is not accurate? Let's say I wake up in the morning, I go in the bathroom, and I try to shave and gel my hair, and I don't turn a light on. How well am I going to do? Now, I know some people can gel their hair with the light off because they have no hair, and I'm not quite at that point yet. God may bring me there, but I'm not there yet. I need to be able to see what's true in order to make myself presentable. I don't want a light that shows me falseness. I want a light that shows me reality. We are not saying, just so we're clear, there is nothing in this that says your experiences are invalid. They're not invalid. They just don't beat Scripture. Your experiences, my old self, at least 10 months ago, would have said, I don't care about how you feel about something. That's not actually true. And I was challenged by somebody to not say it that way because he knew it wasn't true. I do care how people feel about things. I do care about the experiences that they've had and what they're sensing in life. I just don't accept that that is what makes their decisions for them. I don't accept that, that their feelings are the things that are the most important, the most fundamental to what they're doing, because that is supposed to be scripture. 
Again, no matter what your experience is, no matter what your feeling is, those are real and they matter. Don't miss that. They just don't matter to such a point that they get to trump what scripture says. I've been in conversations with people, not in this state, but I've been in conversations with people where they say, I feel bad in my marriage, therefore I am going to, or I have had an affair. And because I felt bad, the affair is okay. What? Your feelings about this relationship are not relevant to what the scripture says about how you're to act. That's what I'm saying. Your feelings matter greatly. What you sense in your marriage matters greatly or in life and in general. But that doesn't trump what scripture says about how we're to act. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. Sorry, Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Says this. Keep your life free from the love of money. This is the author of Hebrews' last statements, and and sometimes they're quick statements, but they connect. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God told that to Joshua in chapter one, verse five, Joshua one, five. God told that to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 31. And now it's repeated to us as believers. God will never leave us nor forsake us. He will not do it. Regardless of how it feels, he won't do it. Next week, Psalm 22 starts with this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends with a recognition that he really didn't. He really didn't forsake David. It just felt that way in that moment. His feeling was real. His feeling was valid. His feeling was wrong. But it was real and it was valid. It just did not correspond with reality because the reality is God did not forsake him. He did not leave him. It just felt that way. As we go through those things, we may ask why. We may ask why we're dealing with all this hardship and difficulty. Why do we have these feelings and these experiences if they're not supposed to be the driving force of our life or that most fundamental thing? James chapter one, verses two and four says this, two through four. Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must have its full effect so that you will be blameless and and complete, lacking in nothing. Perseverance, which comes from trials, must have its full effect, which means you need to keep persisting and keep going so that through that, God makes you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, so that God refines you and makes you like his son. But that requires perseverance through trials. The trials are when we feel like God's not there. But if we persevere, when we persevere in Christ, he refines us so that we would be what's called blameless, 
and complete, lacking nothing. We have everything we need. We recognize that we have everything we need because Scripture trumps experience. So when we're down, go to Scripture. When you're euphoric, go to Scripture. When you're mundane, go to Scripture. Meditate on it day and night because his word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path, even when it seems like God is being silent. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for allowing us to know you, to walk with you, to emulate you, to love you. Grant us, Father, the ability to recognize your work all the time. Give us the ability to focus on you regardless of our circumstances and to meditate on your scriptures. We love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.